Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey there, I'm Chris. I'm glad you're with me, uh, especially if you're here with me live. Uh, because of the current COVID spikes, we are not having an in-person service today. So if you're with me live, howdy, man, comment, a, a, how do you do in the comments? And uh, maybe someone will wave back at you. But we're in the third week of our Outsiders message series, where we've been talking about how Jesus responded to people who were hated, excluded, and overall really just rejected people who were outsiders. And it's been an interesting journey over the last couple of weeks as we've talked about how Jesus interacted with a leper who was disgusting and diseased, how he interacted with a Roman soldier who was a hated enemy. And in both cases, Jesus went against explicit purity guidelines that were in Jewish scriptures in order to care for these people. Now, today we're going to talk about a different kind of other because there are people in our world who we don't hate and they aren't disgusting. But for whatever reason, the dictates and demands of our culture have separated us, separated us somehow. So for example, many years ago, I toured in the backup band of a female singer. And now that's me. I'm on the left with all my glorious hair. Now, again, there are two things that you need to know about this band at the time. And the first is this, is that touring is monotonous. When you drive around the country from club to club and you're packed in a van, you start to just look for anything you can do to have fun. And one of the things we liked to do was play pool. And we would play pool anywhere we could, pool halls, bars, bowling alleys, wherever. So that's the first thing. The second thing you need to know is that when you are young and immersed in rock band culture, you tend to adopt a style of dress that maybe doesn't fit the norm. I mean, to be blunt, Young rock stars tend to wear really stupid outfits and think that they're cool. And we were no different. Like, okay, back then, skinny jeans weren't a thing for guys in the 90s. They didn't exist. So we had to go to the store and buy girls' jeans. And just for the record, okay, it's not cool that girls' pants have such tiny pockets. I mean, what are you supposed to keep in there, a quarter? But anyway, I digress. But we didn't just wear tight pants. So this is a clip of me in a music video that we shot, and you'll see that I'm wearing a black feather boa. And yes, I did wear it on stage from time to time. So that was, that's the fashion sense, right? Now, one night after a show, we wanted to play pool, and so we found this nearby pool hall. And when we pulled up, we discovered row after row of Harley Davidsons pulled up in front because this was a biker bar. Now, it's no big deal because we were young and tough. So we all loaded out of the van and we started to go in at least until we saw what our bass player was wearing. He had on this pink fur coat that was short that he'd picked up at a thrift store. And to top it off, he was wearing a tiara on his head. Now that was something that our lead singer wore on stage sometimes. And I don't know if he just thought he was gonna be counterculture, but again, I just wanna be clear. He thought it would be a good idea to wear a pink fur coat and a tiara into a biker bar in the late 90s. Well, none of the rest of us wanted to get beat up, so we bullied him into changing and the night was fine. Now, but you might be asking yourself, what's the big deal? Why can't he just wear whatever he wants? And the answer is he can. The problem was not so much what he wanted to wear, but the cultural complications of what he wanted to wear. So like in our rock band culture, I mean, he could run out on stage in a fur coat and a tiara and the crowd would think it was super rock and roll. He would be the ultimate insider.
But sometimes things don't translate across cultures. And what might have made him really cool and interesting in our culture, it could make him an outsider in another culture. And today we're going to talk about a cultural norm that created outsiders in Jesus' day. And so we start in Matthew 8, verse 14. It says, When Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. Okay, so if you're tracking with this packet, this passage, you may think that you know exactly who the outsiders are that we're going to be talking about today. And those outsiders would be mother-in-laws. And if you think that, shame on you. In-laws are great, and you should be ashamed for thinking any different. But no, not in-laws. There's actually another thing happening here that a first century Jewish audience would see that we never would. So follow me on this. Okay, let me walk you through this. First century Jewish religious law was really comprised of two things. And the first was called the Torah. The Torah was the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament. And it contained the law that was handed down to the Jewish people, to the Israelites, by Moses. Now, the second thing that comprised kind of the Jewish law in the first century were the rabbinical interpretations of these Jewish scriptures. And those interpretations are what is today called the Talmud. So much like today, rabbis would read the Torah and try to make sense of exactly what was being said so that they could apply it. And this obviously led to tons and tons of debates in different schools of thoughts, just like today. And so in addition to interpreting the law, though, they would also expand on it. They called it making a fence around the Torah. And so, for example, the law says to keep the Sabbath as a day of rest. But what is rest and what is work? Is it work to prepare meals? Is it work to bathe? Is it work to take your pants off to go to the bathroom? I mean, these things needed interpretation so that people could follow the law. And different rabbis would interpret and lay out kind of new cultural rules based on those interpretations. And there was one cultural interpretation of the law that is at play in our story. And it starts with some passages about sex and menstrual purity. Okay, so buckle up. This might get weird. I'm going to share three verses out of the Torah, the Jewish law. Leviticus 18.6 says, None of you, or 18.5 says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. Leviticus 18.19 says, You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And finally, Leviticus 15.19, When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. I bet no one placed a bet that we would be talking about this today. But let me boil this down for you. The law said that when a woman was on her period, she was unclean. And anyone who touched her would become unclean. And then in Leviticus 18, which is this in a very popular section of sexual purity regulations in the Old Testament, it forbid a man from having sex with a woman who was on her period as well. And in the, then in that same passage, it also forbids sexual activity between close relatives. Okay, now, if you're wondering how I'm possibly going to thread these things together to get a takeaway out of these passages, just stick with me, okay? So, notice how in Leviticus, the passages from chapter 18 use language saying, 
you shall not approach a woman or approach any close relatives to uncover nakedness. When uncover nakedness is a euphemism for sex. Maybe I'll just start using that in church. I won't. But none of the other sexual purity regulations in Leviticus 18 use the language of approaching someone, except for one other verse. Those passages just say, don't have sex this way. And the rabbis saw this and they wondered why this approach language was there. And they concluded this, the intent of scripture was not just to regulate sexual impurity in these situations, but to regulate proximity as well. And as a result of their attempts to properly interpret the law, this new cultural custom was created in order to build a fence around it. And that was called Nagia. Okay, now the rules of Nagia, this new kind of cultural rabbinic law, it restricted any physical contact between men and women, except for close family members. Now, one reason Nagia existed was because, you know, you could never be certain if a woman was on her period or if she was sexually active. And, and therefore, the only real way to stay pure would be to never touch a woman. Now, this was especially problematic for single women because in order for a woman to be ceremonially clean after her period or after having sex, and this is all weird stuff, I know, but but she would have to have, she would have to bathe in what was called a mikvah, which was kind of like a baptismal tank. But only married women could bathe in a mikvah be, because they wanted to discourage single women from having sex and needing to be ceremonially cleansed. Unmarried women were not allowed into this mikvah pool which meant there was no way for them to be ceremonially clean. And it meant under Nagia, all single women were just assumed to be unclean all the time. Another reason Nagia rules restricted touch between men and women was the assumption of sexual desire. And to this day, Orthodox Jews who follow Nagia, they won't shake hands with a person of the opposite sex or be alone in the same room. I read one modern rabbi who said this. He said that closing a door and being alone with a woman should be recognized as a sexual event. Maybe you have heard of the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham made it a rule to never be alone in a room with a woman who wasn't his wife, unless there was a third party there. And it kind of started this kind of purity culture revolution. And, and this rule, it's become custom for a lot of evangelical pastors. It's not a Bible rule, but it is a cultural guideline that was developed in order to build a fence around the Bible. And in the same way, Nagia may not have been explicit scriptural law, but it was the rabbinic cultural custom. Now, knowing this, let's read our story one more time. When Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal for him. Observe this. Jesus touched her hand. This story is also in the Gospels of Luke and Mark, and, and both of those passages in Luke and Mark highlight that Jesus took her by the hand and helped her up. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at when Jesus healed a man with leprosy, and we asked this question. Why did he have to touch that guy? And it's the same here. Why did Jesus have to touch her to heal her? And he didn't. Because last week, we saw how Jesus healed a soldier servant just by seeing something from a distance. So why didn't Jesus do that here? Why violate the cultural religious customs of his day if he didn't need to? Well, religious people have always been good at building fences in order to protect our purity, our holiness, and our churches. But the thing about fences is that 
they tend to keep people out. They prevent people from coming together because someone will always be excluded on the other side of of the fence, even well-intentioned fences. I mean, decades ago, in order to limit divorce in the church and to make sure that it was taken seriously, churches didn't allow divorced people to serve at all. Some churches wouldn't let divorced people be members or even attend. You would never see a divorced person playing in the band or serving in kids ministry because of that fence. Just in this last century, children who were born outside of marriage, they were prevented from being included in some churches at all because religious leaders didn't want to endorse sex outside of marriage. And single women who did get pregnant were ostracized or they were forced to brutally humble themselves. When I was 13 years old, I vividly remember a teenage girl who was led up onto the stage where she had to confess to our whole church that she had gotten pregnant because she had sex outside of marriage. As if that fence of shaming her publicly would somehow discourage other kids from having sex. And time after time, no matter how good the intentions are of the people who are building the fences, other people are left out. I mean, even the Billy Graham rule has been criticized for reducing women to objects of lust and for restricting opportunities for women to advance in business and ministry because they simply aren't allowed the proximity that their male counterparts are. It's criticized for diminishing the mutual respect that exists between coworkers who have different genders. Now, my intention is not to beat up on any specific fences or, or, to, or definitely not to say that we don't need guardrails in our lives to protect us from making bad decisions. But I am saying this, Jesus never let a purity fence keep him from touching someone who needed him. He hopped those fences over and over again. And that leads to just our big takeaway today, just the one thing, and it's this. Fences that keep people out need to be torn down. In this story today, we see Jesus doing something in a woman's life that went against the cultural norms. And let me prepare you, okay? We're going to see this over and over again. Like this story is really just chapter one of Jesus's approach toward women and his inclusion of women. It was an inclusion that went against the tide of a religious culture that was leveraging Jewish scripture in order to build fences that went way beyond the heart of God. Fences that kept women out of full inclusion in religious and in family and and in leadership circles. And at the heart of all of this is Jesus calling us to step away from the cultural complications we get so wrapped up in and come back to the heart of God. Because cultural complications are just that, complicated. I mean, we ask this, I mean, when is it wrong to allow a person who does this thing or believes this certain thing into a certain level of community? And what do we need to do in order to protect our purity from their impurity? And just like the first century rabbis, we can get so caught up in trying to resolve the minutia of every single possible outcome that could possibly happen from including someone that we miss out on the simple big picture fact that God already did. God has already invited them into his kingdom. They got the same invitation that we did. I mean, there was a time when the Bible was used as the justification to enslave black people. And then it was used to keep black people from eating in the same restaurants as white people, from using the same bathrooms and drinking fountains that white people used, or even from sitting in the same seats on the bus. 
Fences were built up using the words found in scripture to create cultural rules of segregation. And and many well-meaning Christians followed those rules and believed in those rules and propped up an evil system for generations because their fence was more important to them than their neighbor. I know that it's scary to tear down fences, but that's how Jesus lived. That's how he thought about others, not as people we need to protect ourselves from, but as those who need to be reached out and touched in order to be made well. Gospel purity, it will never prevent someone from being a part of the kingdom of God. Gospel purity is not preventative of other people. So just in closing, I mean, how can you apply this to your life today? Well, I mean, it's pretty simple, really. Identify the well-intentioned fences that you have built up in your life that keep people out, and then just start the work of tearing them down. Today, I mean, we talked about how we've seen in this story how there were systems, religious systems, cultural systems that were set up that excluded women from full inclusion and involvement in religious life, in leadership, in family life. We talked about how we've seen those cultural systems built on top of religion, using scripture to justify the exclusion of people of color and even violence against people of color. I don't know who those people are for you today, but I know they're here and I know they're out there. And I want to do everything that I can and I want us as a church to do everything that we can to tear down every fence that we have put up because we are afraid. Because we're afraid of what it might mean to allow someone into our circle. We're afraid that what we perceive as their impurity might damage our purity. It might damage our children's purity. It might damage our church's purity. I just challenge you. Can you trust God enough? Can you trust Jesus enough to do the work, the purifying work that only he can do, the purifying work that he set in motion on the cross, a purifying work that we have no part in? Can you trust him enough to do that? To tear down the fences of fear and to allow the people who've been on the other side of those fences into your life, into our life of faith and into our community. I know when we do this, God will do incredible things in us and through us. Will you partner with me in doing that? Will you partner with me and partner with Jesus in jumping the fence and tearing it down? That is my challenge to you. I encourage you to do it today. And let's go and be the church as we tear down fences. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.